0: Welcome to the Goucher College Library and tonight's program. I'm Nancy Magnuson, Goucher College Librarian. We're, well, we're really excited. We're beyond excited to see all of you here tonight and, uh, and to show off some of the outstanding work our students are doing. So let me say a few words about the format. After the program we have refreshments and at that time you'll be able to talk informally with some of the presenters. Can you hear me? I see you frowning back there. No? Okay, all right. Louder, okay, I'm getting close. All right. After the, right, pr- I'm saying a few words about format. After the uh, presentation, we have refreshments and the opportunity for you to talk informally with the presenters. And you'll also be able to see the accompanying exhibit, uh, which is one floor down, so pay attention and we'll have people who can guide you down there to see it and also talk talk with you about it. So I want to begin with some thank yous um, to the Friends of the Goucher College Library for supporting tonight's program. The Friends have been advocating for the library since 1949 and we're enormously grateful to the alums and others who have chosen this way to support the college. To um, Curator of Special Collections and Archives, Tara Olivero, raise your hand back, she's back there somewhere standing. Um, and other members of the library staff who nurtured this project and tonight's event. To Professors Brooke and Carol Pierce and the fund that carries their name. You can see a little bit about it on your on the back of your program, if you've got a program. Uh, in the last eight years, more than 20 students have been able to devote the time that's needed to carry out in-depth research here, building their scholarly credentials and helping us to learn more about our collections. and. And to President Rhoda Dorsey and the class of 1960, who established a fund in her memory. I believe Rhoda would have loved what we're about to see. Now, I know we have at least one member of the class of 1960. Are there... Raise your hand, and all... Any... Any any other members from the class of '60? Okay, um, we're so proud to present be that the first recipient of your op- award is uh, is going to be presenting tonight, Hannah Spiegelman, um, and let's see. Oh, they raised that fund to celebrate their fiftieth anniversary, their fiftieth Goucher reunion, and to honor the the legendary Rhoda Dorsey, whom. Some of you folks don't remember, but many of us in this room do. Now, I'm pleased to present Tina Scheller. Tina is a professor in the Goucher History Department and a Goucher alumna, so a double point of pride. She's been an invaluable partner in introducing students to the joys of hands-on historical research and will guide you through the rest of the program. Tina. Tina.
1: Thank you, Nancy, for that lovely introduction. Good evening, we're so happy to see all of you tonight. Um, those of you who are here willingly, those of you who are encouraged by your professors to come, we love to have you, thank you so much for being here. On a frigid morning in February of 100 years ago, a group of gouchers, the cold as well as the disapproval of their college president and boarded a train at Pennsylvania Station in Baltimore destined for Washington DC. Once they arrived at Union Station the students proceeded to the White House where they joined other women's college students to form a picket line in front of the White House gates with placards beseeching President Wilson to support a constitutional amendment that would grant women the right to vote. Tonight, on the centennial of this daring college picket, we are gathered to commemorate this event. We will do so by sharing with you the history of Goucher College students and faculty who not only participated in the picket, but also played an important role in the movement for women's suffrage. Now, before we have some wonderful presenters, but before uh, we start this program, I'd like to um, add to what uh, Nancy said, I want to thank the Friends of the Library, the Class of 1960 Rhoda Dorsey Endowment for the Archives, and the Brooke and Carol Pierce Center for Undergraduate Research. I also want to now thank Nancy Magnuson for her support of the project. Uh, This project would not have been possible without Nancy's support. Um, As many of you know, Nancy is retiring this year as Goucher College librarian. Maybe some people don't know. (laughs) Well, now you know. Nancy is retiring this year. (laughs) And um, I want to take this opportunity, because this is probably my last program with you, Nancy to express my profound appreciation for all she has done for us at the college. Nancy, uh, throughout her long career at this college, uh, Nancy has been a jewel in Goucher College's crown. And we all owe her a great debt of gratitude for the outstanding library she has developed and for her encouragement of student and faculty scholarship. So, thank you. I also wanna thank uh, Jacqueline Cass, Nancy's assistant who helped in so many ways. There she is. To make this program possible. Thank you, Jacqueline. And the extraordinary staff of Special Collections. Tara Olivero, Melissa Straw, Kristen Welsenbach and Debbie Harner. Tara, wave to everybody. Tara is wonderful. Again, without Tara's help, this project would not exist. She located documents for us. She borrowed um, artifacts. She mounted the exhibit. Uh, She has just done so much. And again, um, I appreciate her, and I think we all appreciate everything she does for the college. Thank you, Tara. Um, I also want to thank... There's a lot of thank yous here. Um, I also want to thank the Goucher students in my fall uh, 2016 History of Baltimore class. 19. (laughs) Nick Moore, um, Emily Rhines, David Hernandez, and Laura Hawes. Uh, They did some amazing research on the suffrage movement and you'll hear about that tonight. Uh, And finally, I want to thank the leaders of this project, uh, Hannah Spiegelman and Clara Hartman, uh, two outstanding Goucher graduates, uh, for their excellent, excellent work on this project. Um, Through diligent research in the college archives, as well as a number of other archives, uh, they assembled the story of the 1917 Goucher Day Picket of the White House. After Ka- Clara left the project during the summer, Hannah assumed responsibility for the research and writing on, this, on, on, the, on the larger uh, topic of the suffrage movement at Goucher, um, and the program you will uh, hear tonight and the exhibit that you will see downstairs are in large part the result of Hannah's excellent efforts. So, thank you. That's it for the thank yous. Now... One last item to mention before I turn the program over to Hannah. Um, As a result of this project, uh, many of us have developed a new interest in Goucher's history, a very rich history. Um, And we are trying to form a group uh, to come up with ideas for promoting the study and display of Goucher's history. So if you might be interested, if you might be interested in joining a group such as this, which we've dubbed tentatively Friends of Goucher History, um, if you please, there's a sign-up sheet over on the table. Please add your name um, and email address to the sign-up sheet. Um, there's no commitment, you're not obligated, uh, but you may want to just, we want to uh, start a conversation about this and see what we can do to uh, to promote our college, which I don't think enough of us know much about. So um, take some time to sign up. And without further ado, I present Hannah Spiegelman, who will uh, begin the program.
2: Welcome, everyone. Good evening. When I started this project seven months ago, I did not expect it to grow into a presentation and an exhibit. I did not expect to uncover so much forgotten history from Goucher College in Baltimore City. I did not expect to learn about alumna after alumna and so many faculty members who accomplished so much while at Goucher and after they had left. I'm very happy to be here tonight to share this history with all of you. Tonight we will explore the history of Goucher's involvement in the women's suffrage movement. We will be talking about some of the major students and faculty in the movement and the events in which they participated, culminating with the College Day Picket on the White House 100 years ago tomorrow. The 1890s saw significant advances in higher education opportunities for women, as well as women's civic activism. In 1885, the United Methodist Church charted the first women's college in Baltimore. Goucher College opened its doors in 1888, and although the school and city with which it was located were still conservative, Goucher was a pioneer of progressive education. Dr. Hans Frohlicher said, quote, this was to be a college to break down the prejudice against higher education for women among the women in Baltimore. As early as the 1890s, students at Goucher College learned about the suffrage movement through the teachings of Dr. Thaddeus P. Thomas. He was a professor of economics, sociology, and history. Starting in 1894, Thomas held suffrage debates in his classes and encouraged his students to discuss the controversial issue, no matter their opinion. While many students were in favor of suffrage, others were strongly against it. As you can see by the quotes, higher education and suffrage did not automatically go hand in hand. Um, The pro-suffrage sides believe that the sphere, the proper sphere of a woman is in doing what is right. When you say that women are not fit to vote and that men are, you admit that we are inferior. A visit to the polls will not be any more an interruption of duties there than it is to the businessmen. While the side against suffrage would say things like, suffrage diminishes man's respect for her and will degrade her moral nature. Women will lose their good looks by engaging in political life. This represents the very opposing views of the day. Early suffrage advocates at Goucher included Dr. Thomas and Dr. Lillian Welsh, professor of physiology and hygiene. Welsh was the most important leader of the suffrage movement on campus. Emily Rhines will now discuss her contributions.
3: Lillian Welsh Welsh initially went to college to become a teacher and immediately went on to become the principal of the high school she herself had attended. During her tenure there, she once had a student come to her office in distress because he had been assigned to debate against suffrage for his English class, and he told her that through her example, she had so completely convinced him that suffrage was a good idea that he couldn't think of any arguments against it. She always thought that woman suffrage was a good idea but she uh, became convinced in 1888 when she attended her first suffrage convention while at medical school in Pennsylvania. After graduating medical school in the United States, she went on to pursue graduate education in Zurich because America had no graduate medical schools and the school in Zurich was the only one that would accept female students. While she was there, she met Dr. Mary Sherwood and the two became lifelong friends. Shortly after returning to America, they set up a practice in Baltimore together and spent several years working at the evening dispensary for women and girls, a free clinic in Baltimore that was staffed entirely by female doctors and nurses. It was there that Lillian became convinced that preventative health work and the public health movement was the most important. In 1894, She came to work at Goucher doing medical exams of students and determining what kinds of physical education they would need and worked her way up to become a full professor teaching both hygiene and animal physiology courses. Under her guidance, our physical education department went on to inspire other girls' schools and become a model for physical education for women at a time when many thought that physical education would be greatly unhealthy for them. Her work on the 1906 suffrage convention in Baltimore where Goucher students acted as ushers for college night brought her into contact with Mary Elizabeth Garrett and other leading suffragists of the day and it was then that Lillian became a major force for suffrage both in Baltimore and on Goucher's campus. She later recalled that it was a rude awakening when I found that we the people did not include women. In 1913, she and other Goucher women marched in the parade on Washington, despite the fact that they were not given the day off from work or class. Lillian marched with a contingent of classmates from her days at the Women's Medical College in Pennsylvania. Throughout her career, she was active in both the women's suffrage and public health movements and used her classes at Goucher to advocate for both causes. One of her students later remembered in a tribute to her that in the days of the struggle for women's suffrage, all subjects in her course on hygiene inevitably led to the discussion of votes for women.
2: It is very important to acknowledge that the women of the suffrage movement were divided by race, and African American women were often ignored or purposely pushed aside by white suffragists to increase chances of the passage of the 19th Amendment. Laura Hawes will now discuss the role of African American women in the movement. Just as Lillian Welsh felt
4: excluded from We the People on account of her gender, within the African American community in Maryland, women were experiencing sexism in addition to racism while working to secure their right to vote. Speaking to a crowd in Baltimore in 1864, Frederick Douglass argued, If the Negro is called upon to take his share of the toils and dangers of warfare, he should also have the privileges of elective franchise. Although black women technically fall under his category of the Negro, Douglass's justification for black enfranchisement was built upon the image of the black male soldier and implicitly excluded these women. The movement for universal manhood suffrage, which eventually led to the passage of the 15th Amendment in 1868, was focused on guaranteeing citizens the right to vote regardless of race, color, or previous condition of servitude, but did not include gender as a protected category. Black women were excluded from this suffrage movement, and white women saw this movement in opposition to their own. White women's anger increased the racist sentiment already present within the women's suffrage movement, and as the cartoon on the left illustrates, they excluded black women from their suffrage activities just like the men. Many women's suffrage groups refused to support the 15th Amendment, and after its successful passage, formed alliances with racist Southerners who they convinced to favor the women's suffrage movement by suggesting that white women's votes could neutralize the impact of votes cast by African Americans. Susan B. Anthony said herself, I will cut off this right arm of mine before I will ever work or demand the ballot for the Negro and not the woman. Since these other movements proved inherently exclusive, African-American women in Baltimore came together and found ways to build their own movement for suffrage that embraced their collective identity as black women. Their significant activities and contributions were not included in newspapers like the Maryland Suffrage News, but were featured in the Baltimore Afro-American. According to articles from the Afro, these women organized meetings and arranged for speakers to come to their local churches to advocate for universal female suffrage. The Colored Women's Suffrage Club of Maryland held weekly meetings in Baltimore, and the elite Du Bois Circle Club publicly held the opinion that ladies should have the right to vote. Baltimore suffragist Frances Harper, pictured here, also asserted that much as white women need the ballot, colored women need it more. Harper co-founded the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs, which held its national conference in Baltimore in 1916. During the conference, a pro-suffrage resolution was adopted and the group pledged to fundraise a million dollars over the course of a year to help fund suffrage efforts. Much of the history of the African-American women's suffrage movement in Maryland is still ongoing and has yet to be uncovered. A possible next step would be to look into the minutes of the Du Bois Circle Club, which is still an active club in Baltimore today. Thankfully, institutions like Outer ensure that this research is still ongoing and encourage students like myself to bring some of these lesser known narratives into view.
2: 1906 was a turning point for Goucher student activism and suffrage and for the national suffrage movement in general. In that year, the National American Women's Suffrage Association held its annual convention in Baltimore. At this convention, national suffrage leaders passed the torch of leadership to a younger generation of activists, college-educated women. Nick Moore will now discuss this momentous event in Baltimore and suffrage history.
5: The National American Women's Suffrage Association, which I'll be referring to as NASA because it's a mouthful, um, was the organization for the fight to secure a constitutional amendment for women's right to vote. In the years preceding the convention, NASA realized it needed to make some changes. Its membership stood at a mere 10,000 people, uh, and their membership were growing old, or their leaders were growing old. In addition, NASA needed to change its public image for one of a small group of activists to one that would appeal to the elite. By changing their image, organizers sought friends in high places with enough money to propel their fight for women's suffrage into the 20th century. However, uh, suffrage the suffrage movement required more than just money. It required a new wave of women to lead the fight. Susan B. Anthony recognized this and decided to target the college woman. Uh, leaders of NASA such as Susan B. Anthony and Dr. Anna Howard Shaw, made a statement when they decided to hold the convention in the southern conservative city of Baltimore. With the help of wealthy social philanthropist Mary Elizabeth Garrett, the convention achieved the prestige, prestige desired by organizers. In the fall of 1905, Mary Elizabeth Garrett approached Lillian Welsh and Mary Sherwood about the convention and asked for help with planning a college evening. Lillian Welsh arranged for Goucher students to meet Susan B. Anthony at Garrett's house. Lillian recounts this magical moment in her memoir, stating, the college woman of Baltimore, however, will recall with greater vividness of the following Sunday afternoon when Miss Garrett invited them to come in for a cup of tea and a personal word from Miss Garrett. There, were liter- there we literally sat at her feet and knew we were in the presence of a great soul. I shall never forget the picture she presented and the fading light of the afternoon and the fitful play of the flames of an open fire. She wore her famous garnet-colored velvet dress and a lace collar, end quote. Welsh also arranged for the Goucher college students to act as ushers uh, in full cap and gown for the college evening. When, doctor, or when President Goucher found this out, he was pretty upset uh, because he was against suffrage. Um, however, Dean Van Meter persuaded him otherwise, arguing that this night was a very important night for Goucher women and they should be a part of it. In the days leading up for the convention, suffragists and leaders from state chapters flocked to Baltimore. They presented reports and heard speeches from notable suffrage leaders, some of them including Jane Adams of Hull House, M. Carey Thomas of Bryn Mawr College, and Reverend Dr. Anna Howard Shaw. In the course of the convention, the college evening was really the most important night. College women from across the country lined the rows of the Lyric Theater to hear college leaders speak. At the close of the night, a very sick Susan B. Anthony who was 85 at the time, climbed to the podium to make a few remarks, saying, if any proof were needed of the progress of the cause for which I have worked, it is here tonight. The presence of, on the stage of these college women and in the audience of all those college girls who will someday be the nation's greatest strength will tell their own story to the world, end quote. Overall, this convention was the most successful that NASA ever held. Uh, they had secured funding for the next five years and they had passed the torch to a new generation of suffragists. And by 1915, membership stood at 1 million, which is a far away from 10,000 nearly 25 years earlier. uh, At the close of the convention, Susan B. Anthony made her last remarks in public, stating, The fight must not cease. You must see that it does not. Failure is impossible. Thank you.
2: To attract attention to the cause, suffrage leaders organized two major parades in Baltimore in the summers of 1912 and 1913. At the end of June 1912, Baltimore held the Democratic Convention. Local suffragists saw it as the perfect opportunity to organize a large and bold suffrage parade. According to Ida Harper, suffrage historian, the parade was the most spectacular feature of convention week. Goucher students and faculty participated in the parade and a 1910 alumna, Delia Melvin, joined other suffragists dressed as Joan of Arc, a symbol of the movement. You can see up here. It was a lavish pageant featuring multiple floats, including one representing the working class women and actors dressed as historical figures, such as 17th century Margaret Brent, the first woman to ask for the vote in Maryland. Goucher students also participated in a 1913 parade made up of 5,000 suffragists. They proudly marched throughout downtown Baltimore met by anti-suffragists who planned to throw lemons and eggs at the suffragists before they were stopped by police. Another important march organized by NASA was set to take place the day before President Wilson's inauguration on March 3, 1913 in Washington, D.C. Prior to the parade, suffrage leaders formed a suffrage army, which hiked over 200 miles from New York to Washington, D.C. David Hernandez will now talk to us about the suffrage army and the Goucher alumna who joined the suffragists and reported the hike.
6: All right. Emily Detch's lifelong devotion to the gender equality struggle was truly remarkable. She was a pioneer in every sense of the word. Sorry. It's a shame that she's been obscured by history for for as long as she has, but with that being said, I'm so grateful to have been given the opportunity and honor to shine light on such an amazing woman. Emily graduated from Goucher in 1903, and after her graduation, Emily applied to law school. In 1906, she graduated from the University of Maryland Law School, And on January 29, 1907, became the second woman admitted to the bar by the Maryland Courts of Appeals, second only to Baltimore's Maddox. Emily didn't practice law immediately after graduation due to a lack of opportunity in the field. Instead, she took up work at the Baltimore News as a journalist. Her most notable contribution to the Baltimore News was her time spent as an Army correspondent covering the Suffrage Army hiker's journey from New York to D.C. in February of 1913, filing daily reports with the paper. Emily was not only a journalist on the march, but she was also one of the 14 women that completed the entire 240 mile trek by foot in the harsh February winter. The marchers defied the notion that women were fragile and more importantly, not fit to have the right to vote. More specifically, the purpose of the suffrage march was to hike from New York to Washington to bring attention to the cause of women's suffrage um, marching on the inauguration, as Hannah said before, um, on March 3rd. Um, yeah. So up here on the left here is a uh, newspaper clipping, and it's one of the 20 or so uh, daily newspaper clippings that, or headlines that Emily Dutch wrote. And um, in her d- dispatches, she chronicled daily happenings of the Army, um, or including uh, what they wore, what their signs were, but also kind of interesting facts like a lot of the time as they would enter a city, a lot of the female hikers would get proposed to by male suitors at- upon entering the cities. And there, um, one of the funniest news clippings I read from hers was when they went to Penn State, um, there was like line, uh, lines of men or in lines of students like throwing flowers and engagement rings or just like things to like tie them down, you know, as they were walking by. And... Um, Also, another big thing that she wrote about was desertion. Since they were walking 240 miles, there were a lot of women who were walking. It was like, "I'm going to take the train," or (laughs) "I'll meet you guys in D.C. on March in March." So, it was was actually her reporting was really, really funny and candid. Um, But beyond the suffrage march, Emily Detch strove to be a woman trailblazer. Um, In the spring of 1923, Emily Detch became the first woman to run for Baltimore City Council. Um, she lost, finishing seventh in the race citywide, but she remained politically active all her life. Um, here up on the left again is, um, a, new, uh, is a quote from a round robin letter she wrote to the class of um, 1926 explaining the need for women's participation in politics. I hope if any of the rest of you have a chance to run for, politi- uh, for public office that you won't be scared, but will jump right in. Women are needed in politics, and college women in that respect have bigger responsibilities than others. And whatever the outcome, the experience is worthwhile. In 1928, Emily was appointed to the position of assistant city solicitor, making Emily the first woman to hold a major post in the Baltimore city government. And um, in, 19, in 1969, in June of 1969, Emily passed away at the age of 86, but up until, the age of her, up until her death, she remained active in Baltimore politics and uh, Baltimore civil societies on the behalf of women, and of, um, she also had a, a large care for uh, small children, too, becoming the president of the Fresh Air Fund um, in Baltimore. We, um, she left behind a vibrant legacy of women's empowerment and monumental first in the fight for gender equality, and she was a truly remarkable woman.
2: The most important march for the suffrage movement took place in Washington, D.C. on March 3rd, 1913. Nassau organized hundreds of suffragists to march one day before President Wilson's inauguration, making sure the president would hear their voices. The photo on the top right shows the crowd for the suffrage march, while the photo on the bottom right shows the crowd for Wilson's inauguration. <laughs> This image may look coincidental to some of us, it sounds like all of us, <laughs> who notice similar crowd size comparisons for a recent President's inauguration and the Women's March on Washington. About 100 Goucher women participated in the 1913 March. Lillian Welsh was encouraged by her students to miss her classes in order to attend. Due to its size and the public's opposition to the suffragists, the march lacked police uh, protection and crowd control, as you can see at the top photo. Despite its intensity, Goucher students and faculty were thrilled to have attended. Catherine Davison, a Goucher senior, relayed the excitement of the parade in a letter to her father. She wrote about her sister, quote, She's now so thoroughly converted to it that she's willing to endure several strenuous hours of marching with hundreds and hundreds of suffragettes for the good of the cause. She also wrote, quote, think it will be sort of interesting to tell my great-great-grandchildren that I marched in the suffrage parade. Between 1910 and 1916, there were many visitors to Goucher's campus who talked on suffrage some in favor and some against the question. In 1910, former President Teddy Roosevelt came to campus and advised Goucher students to let men focus on their rights and women focus on their duties. Five years later, Goucher received the charismatic face of the suffrage movement, Inez Mulholland Boisivin. Mulholland spoke in front of a crowd of 500 and asked the students, quote, Is there a woman opposed to women's suffrage here? And if there is, will she say so? The Baltimore Sun reported that, quote, not one feeble sound resembling a dissent broke the silence. Of course, there were still anti-suffragists at Goucher, but by 1915, the majority of Goucher students were in favor of suffrage. In 1916, Goucher's first suffrage club was created. Sorry. Evangeline Evangeline Barsky, a senior, and Ida Glatt, an activist junior, formed a chapter of the College Equal Suffrage League with the help of other students and Lillian Welsh. At the same time Goucher was increasing its activism, the national suffrage movement was shifting gears. The Congressional Union for Women's Suffrage, a subgroup of NASA, wanted, the, wanted greater focus on the passage of a suffrage amendment. NASA still believed in quieter tactics. So the union, which became the National Women's Party in 1917, broke away from NASA. After the dramatic death of Inez Mulholland in 1916, with her plea, quote, Mr. President, how long must women wait for liberty? The National Women's Party was inspired to take a more militant approach. In January 1917, the National Women's Party began for the first, became the first group to ever picket the White House. They began a picketing campaign that lasted every day until the summer of 1919 when the 19th Amendment was passed. Many picketers were arrested, sent to a work camp, and force-fed. While no Goucher students were arrested, a large group of Goucher suffragists participated in the most militant phase of the national movement. Clara Hartman will talk uh, about Goucher's contribution to the pickets and some of the alumni involved.
7: So, um, we've already been briefly introduced to her, but this is Ida Glatt, and she is kind of central to the story of 1917 at Goucher and involvement in suffrage. She was um, an immigrant, a Jewish-Lithuanian immigrant who was raised her whole life in Baltimore, and kind of differed from a lot of her fellow students in that she was a few years older because she'd had to work before she got to Western on scholarship. Before she came to Goucher, she was already really invested in social um, causes in Baltimore. She was a member of the Just Government League. Um, She had been part of the First Prairie Schooner, which was a suffrage activity where they basically got a covered wagon, got in it, and then drove 350 miles around um, stumping for suffrage. Um, She was a big advocate for um, socialism on campus and got a, um, a class, an economics class on socialism, and she was also part of things like anti-conscription efforts, which almost prevented her from being able to graduate from in this institution. So um, with Lillian Welsh and Evangeline Barsky, she founds Equal Suffrage League, and in 1917, when um, the National Women's Party, which was formerly the Congressional Union, starts picketing the White House, Ida Glatt is on board. Like, she is so ready and she writes directly to Alice Paul saying, we will be there, I volunteer myself and Goucher Bodies to like fill the pickets. Um, Like, the letter gets to the National Women's Party before they can even finish writing and sending their letter inviting Goucher to the pickets. Um, And they eventually decide that they're gonna invite her to the College Day Picket, which is a special picket And the special pickets were part of National Women's Party's strategy to, on Saturdays, have women other than the normal picketers come and join. So they had um, state days like the Maryland Day, Virginia Day, Pennsylvania Day. They had the wage earners day. They had the teachers day. And this was to keep the newspapers interested because it's not just the same 30 women involved. Now we have all these other women who are in here that you can be up in arms about. Um. And Goucher's was really important to the College Day strategy. We were really the only Southern women's college in this area, so we kinda need to fill the ranks. So immediately, Mabel Vernon um, of National Women's Party, she was the corresponding secretary, advertises the College Day is going to be amazing, Goucher is sending a ton of students, and Baltimore goes nuts. Um, (laughs) The Baltimore newspapers were up in arms, because this was really objectionable on a number of levels, one being Baltimore was okay with women's education, but this sort of militancy, militant um, suffragism was completely outside the boundaries of kind of the genteel social mores of Baltimore. And also because it was seen as an underhanded strategy on the part of Alice Paul to try and involve Margaret Wilson, daughter of the president, in joining the Pickets. Um, Margaret Wilson was a Goucher graduate, she'd been an usher. Um, at the NASA convention. She was a speaker on suffrage for many years. So, this is just one of the many editorials that was published, saying, if Goucher is to be considered merely a nursery for militant suffragists, it will be apt to suffer, and its expanding usefulness might be greatly checked. So this was definitely provoking and required a response of Goucher. Goucher President Guth's response was, you're right, they should not be involved, and he pro- placed a ban on Goucher students being involved in the marches, on, in the pickets, and that was on the basis of World War, War I is coming up, um, and he said, this is not the time to rock the ship. Um, the picketers are a nuisance to the president, they are adding stress to his day, we really just need to back him up right now, um, So this is an unpatriotic activity, an un-American activity, and certainly not a civil activity. Um, And Glatt's response to this is to say, okay, we're not going to go to Washington on behalf of Goucher. We'll just be a bunch of random Goucher students who happen to be there. Um, We're just individuals. So on February 3rd, 1917, they go to Washington Um, They make up the vast majority of the picketers. There's between 20 and 30 differing reports. Goucher students there. The next largest party is Bryn Mawr, and they have like 12. Um, So Goucher is there. They're a big part of it. Um, Christina Flint, who's one of the students that goes there, describes it as a cold, windy day. There's snow on the ground, but also a really exciting day and one of the most memorable days in her life. And you can kind of see that it was an exciting day for her. She's second from the left. She has a big smile on her face, uh, posing for this photo that appeared in the Baltimore Sun, um, which was a huge problem for Guth. He just made this very public ban on Goucher students going to the picket. And then there they are on the front page, being named as five brave Goucher suffragists. so on February 6th, he calls together an assembly of all the Goucher girls, and he rails into them, um, saying they're an embarrassment to the institution, among other things. Um, it's this large rebuke. All the newspapers report on it, and they report that, for the most part, there's huge applause on behalf of the Goucher students when he's rebuking the other girls. Um, so I think that brings up like an interesting point about the National Women's Party strategy, that Guth was the first Goucher president ever to speak in in support of suffrage while in office. Um, Goucher at this point is very in favor of suffrage, but the National Women's Party and this militant activism was deeply, deeply, deeply unpopular, and that's kind of on purpose. Um, Alice Paul's strategy was based on the idea of we need to become such a huge nuisance, we need to make sure that we are commanding media attention relentlessly, that you have to address the problem. Um, and so that's what this picket was about, was about making sure that they never left the newspaper, um, that they never ceased being an embarrassment to um, President Wilson or to Congress who have these women fainting and um, freezing to death and stuff on their front, right, at their entrance. Um, and that's ultimately why it was so successful in enforcing the matter of the 19th Amendment. Um, Goucher students, despite the rebuke, they returned to the pickets on March 3rd. Um, That was Ida Glatt and a variety of other students, as well as Margaret Season, who was an alumna. Um, She graduated in 1916 and was a huge part of the Just Government League in Baltimore. Um, And then Evangeline Barsky was also an alumna who was really influential in some activism that happened specifically at Congress. So these are a few of the ladies. Um, Hannah and I researched the biographies of 13 women who were involved from Goucher this summer. Um, And I can't really make any generalizations about their lives because they went on to do really different things. The only thing I can say is that their lives greatly diverged from those of generations before them. Um, They all had really successful careers, really groundbreaking careers. Just a few I wanted to highlight are Ida Glatt. Um, After Goucher goes on, she moves to Chicago. She lives in Hull House. She becomes a part of Fabian Society. And she becomes a labor organizer. So she leads a bunch of really important strikes in Wisconsin. Um, She's a member of the Communist Party. Mary's another member of the Communist Party. And they basically run, like, the southwestern region of the Communist Party for many years. She becomes a social worker. And really until her death is... um, greatly involved in labor activism. Um, Lucy Graves becomes Lucy Graves Taliaferro. After Goucher she goes to Woods Hole Marine um, Laboratory which is still one of the most prestigious um, institutions in the nation. She eventually works um, and gets her doctorate from Johns Hopkins in parasitology and her and her husband are the um, foundational scientists when it comes to quinine and other antimalarials. So she's a huge icon in uh, the scientific world. Hilda Bergner is an actress for a while. She runs the first car rental business for a long time. Um, and then her and her husband, their real political legacy is they are um, really big-name Democrats and helped create International House after World War I. Um, which eventually became the World Trade Center, so not a small accomplishment um, and Christina Flint is she goes on to be a social services minist- services administrator um, when she retires she's the state director of Public Assistance and Services of Arizona and then after she retires is when her like biggest legacy comes into play, she becomes one of the first major advocates. Um, for rights and um, dignified care for the elderly. Um, and co chairs the first summit of the Arizona Council for Senior Citizens, and spends a lot of her last years in DC um, working uh, in Congress to improve um, those conditions. So they all remain politically active throughout their lives. Um, and one thing that we learned doing this research was just what a trailblazing legacy Goucher alum have.
2: Two months after the college day picket, the United States entered World War I. During the war, many Gamptre students and faculty focused on the war effort. However, there were still students who remained active in the suffrage movement. Not long after the war ended, President Guth signed a petition for the 19th Amendment in Baltimore. On June 4, 1919, the 19th Amendment was passed by Congress, and on August 18, 1920, the amendment was ratified. In November 1920, President Guth granted Goucher students leaves of absence to vote for the first time. Once having won the right to vote, Goucher students and alumni remained politically active. Emily Detch, as David has shown, is one example of this continued activism. There are many, many more examples, but that is another chapter in Goucher's history, one that is still waiting to be written. I hope this project is just the start of Goucher's increased commitment to investigating its extraordinary history. It has become clear to everyone who worked on this project that there is so much untapped history, history that not only shaped Goucher, but also shaped Baltimore City and social movements. There are alumni and alumni, as well as faculty, who have gone on to accomplish incredible feats. I hope we can continue to learn, share, and celebrate the impressive history Goucher has been a part of.
0: I can't tell you all how proud I am of the work you've done. So we have a few minutes for questions. If there you take questions. Do we have a, any questions from the audience? You will have a chance later to talk with, uh, talk with the students. Elaine Weiss.
2: Right, Um, yeah, Maryland did not ratify it until 1941, and I don't think it went into effect until the 58, yeah. Um, So I I think Clara mentioned that Guth was originally a supporter of suffrage. He was the first women's college president to ever come out in favor of suffrage in 1914 when he was inaugurated to Goucher. Um, But because of the militant suffrage activity really closed down, and I don't know what he did after. I don't think he was a big like, activist.
7: Um, he, the, to answer that question, he did write a letter to the okay. state legislature. <laughs> <laughs> Um, It was very rich and very white. Yeah, so Ida Glatt, like she really does stand out um, for being not very rich. Um, But yeah, that was part of the reason that so much horror and like in chaos was given when they saw that these girls were the ones going and being out in the cold for a few hours was definitely because they were a protected class of women.
2: Uh, I think it was extremely important. Uh, Like Clara said, they wanted to be a nuisance. They wanted to be out there every day and making sure they were getting in the headlines. Uh, They originally had special picket days to get more attention, but once they started getting arrested in the summer of 1917, those special days stopped and their arrests spoke for themselves. Um, I think that that coupled with The United States being in war and fighting for democracy abroad really pushed Wilson once the war was over to pass the 19th Amendment.
1: you that um, because of Hannah, Lillian Welsh and Mary Elizabeth Garrett were just elected to the Maryland Hall of Fame. They'll be admitted in March. So everybody, let's go to Annapolis in March. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I don't.
1: The, uh, William Lush. I'm sorry, Professor
2: which? Who? Oh yeah. William Lush. Do you know the socioeconomic background of William
1: Lush? Actually, do you? Yeah. Yeah. Um. <laughs> she was very middle class. Yeah. I mean, there, she's not wealthy at all. No, she does, she's middle, I would
3: say middle class. Yeah, yeah. I'd say she's definitely not particularly wealthy. Um, her father died when she was very young. So um, it was just her mother supporting the family when she was growing up. And as a female doctor, on her own, she never married. Uh, She was not making a lot of money, especially because she did not have a lot of clients. Because as she wrote in her memoirs, uh, most people thought that you could not be both a lady and a doctor. And people would stop and ask her, which one are you? (laughs)
0: Yeah. The um. Picket, yes. So,
2: against the war, or. Well, uh mm-hmm. huh. The the right. There definitely was a split at Goucher. I don't know specifics about the faculty, other faculty members, but I do know a lot of the students who were the ones to participate in that picket. Um, they were against the war just like the National Women's Party was against the war while NASA which was still the National Suffrage Association uh, supported both they wanted the country to think that there was room for the war and that fight for democracy and also room for women's suffrage but I don't know about Goucher's faculty specifically Yeah, Lillian Welsh did disapprove of the student, not necessarily, we don't know her exact opinions of the students, but she disapproved of the women who were picketing, and she disapproved of their uh, hunger strikes at the work camp. Yeah, she actually visited the work camp, which was in Aquawan, Virginia, and um, she had worked in an insane asylum, so all this force-feeding and hunger strike business was kind of nothing big to her and she just thought it was silly and didn't really propel the cause of suffrage. Yeah. So, (laughs) good question. He was inaugurated in 1914 and then he was here until 1929.
0: Okay, thank you all for being here. Thank you to our amazing students. And please, uh, okay, remember the exhibit is one floor down and uh, I'm, I'm not sure how it's gonna work in this scramble, but you know, find somebody to take you down. And the food is right outside, so please stick around, talk to each other, talk to the presenters. Thank you, thank you, thank you for being here.